Tonight, lesson number four, lesson number four, John chapter one, verse one, in the beginning was the word. Notice the way that word is capitalized. It's not a lowercase, it's a capital W, so it's referring to someone, a person, an individual. And we know that that is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of all men. So before, before creation even began, and we'll talk about creation one of these days. I don't know if we'll get into that next week, but um, pray, pray about next week that God would lead the way. Lead the way. But, uh, you know, Jesus' existence did not begin in the manger. And uh, it's okay to say that over and over again. We need to be reminded of that. That is not when Jesus began. That's when his earthly uh, time began. But he was before the beginning. He was self-existent as well. So as we come to this lesson of Scripture, though, Jesus, in his earthly ministry one day, would take his disciples to a place called Caesarea Philippi. And he would take his disciples to a specific place where there was a steep rock cliff there. And on this steep rock cliff, there were false gods that were kind of carved into uh, as, in, as like a shrine. If you've ever seen a shrine to a false god, there was a shrine there. And uh, let's, go, let's go in our Bibles to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, and let's read what happens. So that's the background. They're standing around, and they're seeing this, these shrines, if you will. And Jesus asked them a question in, John, in Matthew 16, 13. And you, you've read this. Many of you have probably read this. Okay, here's the question. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, here's the question. Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? You know, that question is still a question in 2022. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Now, the disciples gave various answers that they had heard people say who Jesus was. Verse 14. Some say thou art John the Baptist. Well, we know he's not John the Baptist, but that's who some people said he was. Some people said he was Elias or Elijah. Well, I don't think he's Elijah. But they thought, well, maybe Elijah came back to life, and here he is. Some said you're Jeremiah. That's Jeremiah, the Old Testament prophet. And then he said, and some said, or you're one of the prophets. So, so think about it. If you think it was, it's confusing in 2022 who people, what people say Jesus is or who people say Jesus is, it was also confusing in the time of Jesus. Here's what, the, here's what they were saying. Jesus was one, two, three, and really there's, there's three or four answers that they were giving. You know what, I, I'll, I'll tell you, you'll find that very same thing to be true today. If you survey a bunch of people today and you ask them, okay, who is Jesus Christ? You're going to get various answers as to who he is according to the popular opinion of people. Now, again, that's not where we determine what we believe about anything to do with God is what's popular or what's not popular. But the same is happening even today. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, points out the ridiculous nature of any argument that suggests Jesus was merely a good teacher, but was not God. He wrote, quote, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept him. I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who has merely a man and said this sort of things, Jesus, what, what, that Jesus said, excuse me, 
A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him, you can kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Some people will say that Jesus did not claim to be God, but his followers fabricated his claims of divinity. Now, you're in Matthew 16. Let's look at another question that he asks his disciples. So he asked him the first one, who do men say that I am? And he got all kinds of answers. But now he turns to the disciples and he followed it up with this piercing question, but whom say ye that I am? And this is really the bottom line for us tonight. It, 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 honestly, it's not so much our concern that we convince the world of who Jesus is. Yes, we want to show the world who Jesus is from our, our, our testimony. That's one of the greatest things that no one can argue with. The changed life that Jesus Christ has made in our life. But we have to make sure that we understand Jesus Christ and his deity. And we base that, of course, on the word of God. But whom say ye that I am? This is an essential question for today. Whom do we say that Jesus is? And Peter got it right. Peter got it right. You know, sometimes Peter would speak out and open mouth, insert foot syndrome. And you're all, we're all guilty of that. Let's not pick on Peter. You know, he did get out of the boat in the middle of the storm. All right, never forget that. He walked out of the boat in the middle of the storm. Would you have, uh -huh. would I have known? But he did, even though he did speak a little quick sometimes. But this time he gave a really good answer. Verse 16. Simon Peter answered, thou art the Christ. Thou art the Christ. Thou art the anointed one. Thou art the anointed one. That's what the word Christ means. The son of the living God. Peter right here declares that Jesus Christ was, is, and always will be the Messiah, the one who came to be the Savior of the world. No one else has this title. No one else has this ta had this task. Peter simply stated what had already been clear, but others were unwilling to see. I say that we do pray for our unsaved family and our unsaved friends. God, open their eyes that they may see wondrous things out of your law, out of your book. This Bible is the source of faith. This Bible is how we know uh, our, our, our salvation, how we know we got saved, how we know Jesus Christ to be God. Look at Matthew 3, 17. Matthew 3, 17. At the baptism of the Lord Jesus, God himself speaks... God himself speaks in Matthew chapter 3. Jesus' ministry began with his baptism. And um, verse, um, verse 16, And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. So that's the Holy Spirit of God in the form of a dove. So that's part one or a part of the Trinity. Obviously, Jesus is there. He's getting baptized. So that's two out of three of the Trinity. And then verse 17, and lo, a voice from heaven. I don't know of anybody else's voice other than the voice of God. So now we have God the Father, we have God the Son, and we have God the Spirit. Right here is the Trinity. What does God say? He said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus is the Son of God. God declared it for us. Years later, John would write in the Gospel according to John, 
In John chapter 20, if you want to turn over there quickly, John chapter 20 in verse number 31, John would write this about the identity of Jesus Christ. John 20, 31, but these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Folks, there's no way anyone can have eternal life by being a Baptist. It's not going to happen. We have life through one name, the name of Jesus Christ. Eternal life. And by the way, if you're not sure of your, of your, of your eternal destination, getting all these facts in line are important, but the greatest thing, that's in, the greatest importance is, John didn't say, just so that ye might know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, but that ye may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Why? So that you could have life. So that we, could be, that we could be assured that we have eternal life in heaven. That's why it's so important. If we miss the deity of Jesus Christ, we miss the message of salvation and the entire focus of the Word of God. The deity of Jesus Christ. Our biblical worldview, that's what really this whole series is talking about. Our biblical worldview, part of it, to avoid confusion, we must have a foundation of who Jesus is. So, three important truths relative to Christ's identity. Number one, if you're taking notes, number one, the blank there is revelation. Revelation. The revelation of Christ. The Bible reveals Christ as the eternal God who took on human flesh that he might redeem fallen humanity. Did you, did you, let's, let's read that again. Christ as the eternal God. The Bible reveals Christ as the eternal God who took on human flesh that he might redeem fallen humanity. Letter A, Christ is eternal God. Christ is eternal God. Let's go back to our original text, which was John 1, please. Please, let's go back to John 1. The opening statement of the gospel according to John places Jesus Christ, otherwise known as the Word, in the context of time. And it does that by the word was. You see that there? In the beginning, was. This little verb lets us know, as what I said really as my opening statement, that Jesus existed before time began. He existed before time began. When did time begin? Time began when God created the heaven and the earth. But was Jesus already, a, was Jesus already in existence? Yes, he was. In the beginning was the Word. So before the creation account, we know that Jesus existed. He existed before time. He, like God, is all-knowing and omnipotent and omniscient and eternal. How about, some old, how about an Old Testament verse? Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah chapter 43 and verse number 10. Here we see through the prophet Isaiah, God specifically declared that he is the only God. He is the only God. There will be no God after him. There was no God before him. Isaiah 43, verse 10. Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed. Neither shall there be after me. This is a declarative statement. Prior to this, prior to that, there was no God. And after that, there is no God but the God of the Bible. Now, when Jesus walked the face of this earth, faith, face of this earth he said some things that not everyone liked nor agreed with. Let's go to John's Gospel, chapter number 8. John, chapter number 8. 
Now, it's important that we understand that verse in Isaiah. And then we fast forward ahead now to the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice what he says in John 8, 58. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, which means truly, truly, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. See, the implication of this statement of the Lord Jesus in John 8, 58, that He is the eternal God, really fired up the Jews that were there. And look what happened in verse 59. Then, they took, then took they up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. So why did they do this? Because these unbelieving Jews believed that he was blaspheming God and saying that he was God. In reality, Jesus could not be God and not be eternal. One theologian wrote this, the eternality and deity of Christ are inseparable. They're linked together. You cannot deny his eternality, or those who deny his eternality also deny his deity. So Jesus is eternal. In the beginning was the word. So we establish his eternality, and then we go back to John 1.1, And then he, John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word. So he's eternal, just like God. But then the deity of God is explained in the next statement. And the word was God. So not only was he eternal like God, he is God. That's the deity of Jesus Christ. This reveals Christ the Son as a separate person from the Father, yet He is with the Father. Three in one. Not the theme for tonight's message, but notice that phrase, with God. I like how it's put in the notes here. The phrase, with God, I've never thought about it this way. It gives us the idea of two people face to face with each other. If you can look at it and think about it in that way. And the Word was with God. And the Word was with God. You know, Jesus and God face to face. All in the same, being the same person. Let's go back to, let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. And hold your place in John 1.1. But also go back to Genesis 1.1. Okay? There's something interesting here. I think we've probably seen it before. So Jesus is not just a partial expression of God. He's not just a partial expression of God. Rather, we see in the Bible that God the Son and God the Father are are one, but they are separate persona persons, if you will. Now, notice the similarities in Genesis 1-1 and John 1-1. Okay? Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's a parallel structure between these two passages. Notice in verse 2 of Genesis, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness upon the face of the deep. How about John 1, 2? The same was in the beginning with God. So here's darkness. Nothing, but here's God and here's the Son together. All all in one, if you will. Verse 3. Verse 2, I mean. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the... And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, verse 3, Genesis 1, 3, Let there be light, and there was light. Verse 3 of John 1, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So these are compared, you can look at them really on the same page, and you can see how Genesis 1, 1 to 5, and John 1, 1 to 4, there's so many similarities. They're describing the very same thing. In fact, what's happening here is that John is pointing out that Jesus is the very word that was referred to in the creative process in Genesis chapter 1. 
Look at Genesis 1-3. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. How about John 1-4? In him was life, and the life was the light of men. He is the one who spoke light into existence because he is light. And in him is no darkness at all. When we get to heaven, no darkness. Think about it. Literally and also no sin. Why? Because Jesus is the light. There's no darkness in him at all. There's all kinds of songs that have been written, but it's also a biblical principle. You know, no more night. No more sorrow. Why? Because we're in the presence of light. Capital L-I-G-H-T. Jesus is the light. So letter A, Christ is eternal God. Letter B, Christ is manifested in the flesh. He's made known in the flesh. John chapter 1, verse 14. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word, who is the Word? Jesus Christ. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That's the manger. That's Mary and Joseph, and the, you know, that's when he was made flesh, when he was born, and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. I've heard it said before that the scene at the manger is deity wrapped in humanity. Deity wrapped in humanity. A little baby, a little baby in the manger, that's deity wrapped in humanity. What a beautiful sight that must have been. You remember, let's go to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. This helps us understand a little bit more about the him being manifested in the flesh. Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary and became a man without ceasing to become God. But Jesus did not give up his deity when he came to be born of the baby. He didn't become a human being in the same way that we are. He had no earthly father. Keep that in mind. He was put in that womb by the Holy Ghost. So he had no earthly father. So he had no sin. And yet he was tempted time and time again. And we talked about that this morning. Now, Philippians 2 verse 6. 2 verse 6, speaking of Jesus, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. When he came to this earth, he took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of who? Men. Just like you and just like me in that way, he looked like us. He ate fish like us. He got tired like us. Why? Because he had a human body. He cried. He weeped when Lazarus died. John eleven thirty five. He was subject to everything that a human body is subject to, but he was still deity wrapped in humanity. He would look over the the sea, quote-unquote, sea of people, and see them as sheep having no shepherd, and he would be burdened for them. Why? Because he had that in his heart. He loved the people. And verse 6, excuse me, verse uh, 8 says, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. This is the part that humbles me, and it should humble you. That Jesus Christ, who could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free on Calvary's hill, on, on Golgotha's hill, he humbled himself and became obedient to the death, even the death of the cross. At any moment, he could have said, nope, I'm done. I don't think he would have done that, but 
He was obedient to the death, even the death of the cross. The reason why it is so important to recognize the deity of Jesus Christ because it shows us a picture that God is not some far off distant God. Jesus, the Bible says, is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. God is not aloof, if you will. God is not remote. God is not an untouchable being. Jeremiah 33.3, what does God say to us? It's his telephone number. Do you know what he says? He says, call unto me. This is a holy God. A holy God talking to sinners like me and you. He says, call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Now, what in the, wow. That's not the God of most religions that we know about today. No, this is a loving God. Oh, yes, this is a righteous God. Judgment will come. For those that don't know him and excuse me, that don't receive Jesus Christ as Savior, they will be judged. But even in that, the Lord Jesus is so long suffering. He's so long suffering. Giving people time and chances and all of it. The Lord Jesus, God manifested himself to us in, a, in, in person, in person. God manifested himself to us in person so that he could struggle through our struggles, walk on our streets, feel our pain to the fullest degree possible. This Jesus was the physical manifestation of God, literally Christ literally coming to the world in the flesh. Here's how Isaiah said it. Here's how Isaiah said it in 7.14. Many of you know this verse. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Which means what? God with us. God came down to live with his creation. Wow. So that he might ultimately go to the cross and pay sin's penalty for his creation. The very name Emmanuel, God with us. This was prophesied many years before Jesus would be born. How he would be born. And that he would be God in the flesh. I'm going to take time to read this to you. The Old Testament contains 60 major prophecies. Specifically concerning the Messiah. 270 ramifications directly come from these prophecies. 270, 270. Jesus fulfilled every single one of these predictions. This accomplishment is beyond comprehension. The mathematical pro probability of Jesus fulfilling eight, eight of these 60 predictions is 1 in 10 to the 17th power. Meaning, impossible. In order to help us grasp the enormity of this number, Dr. Peter Stoner has provided an example for our understanding. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever been to the state of Texas. I should have looked up to see how much square footage is in the state of Texas and how much of Canada it would cover. But let me just tell you, Texas is a huge state. I remember going on a mission trip when I was a teenager. I remember this. We started the morning just outside of Texas in Oklahoma. And when we got to the other side, it was night. And we were still in Texas. That's a pretty big state, let me tell you. So, I don't know what it compares to. Sorry, I didn't take the time to look that up. But it's a big state. Here's the, here's the, here's the illustration. Imagine the entire state covered in silver dollars two feet deep. Two feet deep. The whole state covered in silver dollars. One coin would be marked. And the entire sea of silver dollars would be thoroughly mixed together. A blindfolded man would be instructed to travel as far as he wished 
and he could only pick up one coin. It had to be the marked one on his first try. The chances of that occurring are the same as Jesus fulfilling even eight of the 60 major prophecies. He fulfilled all 60. The, prob- the probability of Jesus not being Messiah, the Messiah is mathematically impossible. Not that we needed mathematics to prove it, but it's mathematically impossible. Let's move on to number two. So, number one, the revelation of Christ. Number two, the redemption through Christ. The redemption through Christ. Why did Jesus, the eternal God, come and manifest himself in the flesh? His purpose was to bring salvation to all mankind. The song says you can't get to heaven without. S-A-L-V-A-T-I-O-N. If you're in John 1, John 1, verse 13. Which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. How are we born again? That's what it's referring to, being born again. It's not the will of man. I can't earn my salvation. No, it's only through God. It's only through His plan. 1 John 4, 9 and 10. In this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. We might have eternal life through Jesus. Here in His love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Letter A. How did Jesus bring this redemption? Letter A. His sacrifice. His sacrifice. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. Luke 19.10 We were the lost sheep. Jesus came to rescue us. We were lost sinners. Hell bound. Never lose sight of that. We deserve to die for all eternity and, and go to hell. That's what I deserve. For the wages of sin is death. That's eternal separation from God. That's spiritual death in hell. Revelation 20:14. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. We don't have that second death now. Why? Because of his sacrifice. We don't have to, we don't have to wonder when we die, where are we going to go? If we've turned to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and trusted him as our Savior, then we have his sacrifice atoning for our sin record. And the songwriter said it so well. Jesus paid it all. He did not write that hymn, Jesus paid some. Jesus paid most. No, Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin hath left a crimson stain, or sin hath left a crimson stain. His blood washed it white as snow. Jesus, his sacrifice. What a sacrifice that was made for us. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. Jesus Christ is known. He was the man. Excuse me, I'm sorry. This, I seem to be breathing into this thing tonight. I don't know what's going on here. Sorry if I'm disturbing you. Distracting. Jesus freely offers eternal life, as I said, to all who will turn from their own works. Oh, that's the difference, isn't it? That's the difference between religion and relationship. Religion says, I've got to do, 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 do. I've got to keep doing this and keep doing this and keep doing this and keep doing this. And hopefully, when it's all over, my good will outweigh my bad. That's not in the Bible. That's a religious system. But that's not a Bible truth. No, it's, it's, it's either it's, it's my way on one side or it's the grace of God. I don't want my way. I want the grace of God. Because my way isn't going to take me anywhere. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6. Uh, no man cometh unto the Father but by me, his sacrifice. 
Acts 4.12, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Letter B, not only his sacrifice, but as we even think about it next week, but we can think about it every Sunday. Letter B, his resurrection. His resurrection. Ultimately, his resurrection provided the resounding proof of his deity. Yes, he said, remember what he said? Lazarus, come forth. And what happened? Lazarus came forth, bound hand, hand and foot with grave clothes. There he was. Good thing he said, Lazarus, come forth, right? Or else everybody around him that was dead would have just come out of the tomb. That's the kind of power he had. But now he didn't just raise somebody from the dead, he raises himself from the dead. Henry Morris said this, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the crowning proof of Christianity. If the resurrection did not take place, then Christianity is a false religion. If it did take place, then Christ is God and the Christian faith is the absolute truth. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul alludes to this in his writing to the church at Corinth. He said, if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain. Your faith is vain. You're yet in your sins, 1 Corinthians 15, 17. 1 Corinthians 15, 19. In, if in this whole life uh, only, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. So how do we know the resurrection is true? Three proofs. Three proofs. See, there are. Number one, a guarded tomb. A guarded tomb. Matthew 27 65 and 66. Jesus' enemies, the chief priests and Pharisees, asked that the tomb be guarded with Roman soldiers, and their request was granted. Matthew 27, 65. Pilate said unto them, Ye have your watch, go your way. Make it as sure as you can. Talking about the sepulcher where Jesus was laid. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. When Jesus' body was discovered to no longer be there, the guards told the chief priests that he had risen from the dead. The guards told the chief priests that. Matthew 28, 12 to 15. But the chief priests bribed the guards and the guards' superiors to say that he had, instead to say that the guards had fallen asleep on the job. 28, 12 to 15. I won't read that for time. So a guarded tomb. A guarded tomb. You see, every one of these Roman soldiers should have been executed if the resurrection hadn't happened because there was a death penalty on this kind of thing. If a, if a soldier fell asleep where he was on duty, he was to be executed. And so again, the bribery here. Number two. How do we know? A guarded tomb. Number two, an empty tomb. Nobody's in there. Matthew 28, 6. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, come see the place where the Lord lay. If Jesus' body had still been in the tomb, the guards would, have, would not have had to give a reason for why it was empty. An empty tomb. You can read Mark 16, 1 to 6, John 21 to 7. So we have, the, we, have the, um, we have the guarded tomb, we have the empty tomb, and then thirdly, we have many eyewitnesses. Many eyewitnesses, living eyewitnesses. Jesus would appear to his disciples, of course, minus Judas. Over the next 40 days, he would appear to some 500 people. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 5. Peter would see him. The disciples would see him. Over 500 brethren would see him. And remember, we talked about the reliability. And some people might say, well, you just, we were just, that's just in the Bible. That's just the word of man. No, we talked about the reliability of the Bible already. So this is building. This series on not being confused is building. Verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 15, after that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. 
After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. Most of the 500 are still alive, but some have passed away. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me. Paul, as of one born out of a due time. Praise God for the empty tomb. So we have the revelation of Christ. We have the redemption through Christ. And lastly, number three, we have the reunion with Christ. The reunion with Christ. Jesus is more than a historical figure. He is our living God. Whom I pray that we look forward to seeing someday. Scripture says there's coming a day when our eyes can behold him and our faith, our faith will become sight. Jesus told his disciples shortly before he was going to be crucified, he said this, let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will come again. I will come again. I will come again. And receive you unto myself. That where I am, where Jesus is, there ye may be. Also, John 14, 1 to 3. After Jesus' resurrection and ascension, the angels would tell the disciples in Acts chapter 1 and verse 10, two men stood by them in white apparel and said to them, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go. Letter A, the hope of his coming. The hope of his coming. We are assured tonight that if we die before his coming, if we die before his coming as Christians, we are assured tonight, boom, immediately in the presence of God. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8. We are confident. That's how that verse starts out. Paul said, we are confident. I say, willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So as Christians, do we fear death? No, we should not fear death. Why? Because we're assured that immediately we're going to be with the Lord. You might say, well, I, you know, I, I'm, you know, I might, we might fear you know, the way of death, but ultimately we shouldn't even fear that. When it's our time to go, God's going to take us. We have nothing to fear. We're going to go from this sinful body that gets weary and tired and worn and gives into temptation, think about it, and we're going to go immediately into the presence of the Lord. We'll never sin ever again. We'll never be tempted ever again. I mean, boy, I, I am thankful for, for that promise that if I die before he returns, I'm going to be in the presence of the Lord. We're guaranteed that. However, though, there is coming a time when all Christians at once will be reunited. Or united, if you will. Reunited with those that have gone on before us and united with our Savior. We believe this will happen at the rapture. There's two separate events. One is called the rapture of the church, and the other is called the second coming. These are two separate events. Let's look at this quickly. The first one is the rapture of the church. 1 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. 
That means that if all of a sudden, tonight, on the way home, you hear this unbelievable trumpet sound. I believe it's going to happen so fast anyway. But this unbelievable trumpet sound like you've never heard before, you know, boom, there goes the dead in Christ. You know, Brother Gord, Brother Art, uh, Miss Maud. I mean, all those people that we knew here at Anchor. Up they go, your family members, my family members, and we're still alive. But up they go, they're first, and then we're right behind them. That's what it tells us here. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Notice the end of verse 17. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Friends, that is comforting. That's encouraging. As we talked about this morning, even if we're in the desert and the Lord returns, we're going to be with him forever. No one's going to ever take us out of his presence ever again. That's the promise that we have. That's the rapture. And then we have the second coming with the saints. Where do we read this? We read about this in Revelation 19. So Jesus appears in heaven, in the heavens, if you will, and calls for his saints. That's the rapture. The second coming, the second coming is found in Revelation 19 and verse 13. At the second coming, we return with Christ. Revelation 19, verse 11. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. And he was clothed uh, with a vesture dipped in blood. Verse 13. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him. Hopefully you've had some equestrian background. You're going to have to ride a white horse. Followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. The second coming is when the Lord Jesus defeats the armies of the Antichrist. Sets up the millennial kingdom and reign for 1,000 years. The hope of his coming. Letter B. Again, this isn't a lesson on the end times, but... I believe it's important to talk about that within the context, the hope of his coming. Let her be the hope of eternal life. I think we've covered this. The the accompanying hope of Christ's coming is our hope of eternal life. Titus chapter 1, verse 2. Titus chapter 1, verse 2. In hope of eternal life. In hope of eternal life. That word hope there does not mean uh, of, of, I hope tomorrow that it's good weather. Did you hear that thunder earlier? Was it hailing during prayer time? I thought I heard something hitting the roof. Man, God was really speaking to us. Boy, I sure hope that it's good weather tomorrow. That's not what it means. I sure hope I pass my test. That's past tense, thankfully, Joy, right? You passed your test. That's not what it, that's fine to say that, but that's not what it's talking about. This hope is speaking of how my confidence is in the reality of God's promises coming true, and that gives hope to my heart because Titus 1-2 says God doesn't lie. So it's a whole different hope than I hope it's sunny tomorrow because it might not be sunny tomorrow. But I do know this, God's going to provide tomorrow. Whatever we need tomorrow, God's going to provide it because the Bible says God will supply all of our need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. So I have a hope. I have a hope in me that God will always provide for me. Why? Because he says he will. So it's not based on me. It's based on God's word, which will always be fulfilled. God has promised eternal life for all who have believed on him. If you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and accepted him as your, accepted him as your savior, it doesn't mean you're going to stop sinning. There's no such thing as sinless perfection. But we should sin less. (laughs) We should sin less. Why? Because we should be yielded to the Holy Spirit of God more. But we are guaranteed eternal life. 1 John 5, 11 to 13. 1 John 5, 11 to 13. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not the Son hath not life. And the wrath of God abideth on him. 
These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. This, this gift, if you've trusted and believed and accepted it by faith, it can never be taken away from you. You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. You're, sa- you're safe in the hand of God, in the hand of the Lord Jesus and in the hand of God. Tonight we've studied the deity of Jesus. It is a clear truth It is clear that this truth matters in every aspect of our lives. Scripture gives many descriptions. As we close tonight, I'll do my best to read what they've provided in the notes. Consider these significance of these paired with various vantage points and needs people have. To the artist, he is the altogether lovely one. To the architect, he is the chief cornerstone. To to the astronomer, he is the bright and morning star. To the angler, he is the fisher of men. To the baker, he is the living bread. To the banker, he is the hidden treasure. To the biologist, he is the life. To the builder, he is the sure foundation. To the capitalist, he is unsearchable riches. To the carpenter, he is the door. To the Christian, he is the Son of the living God, the Savior, the Redeemer, the Lord. To the drifter, praise the Lord, he is the anchor. To the doctor, he is the great physician. To the editor, he is good tidings of great joy. To the educator, he is the great teacher. To the farmer, he is the sower and the Lord of harvest. To the friendless, he is the friend that sticketh closer than a brother. To the florist, he is the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley. To the geologist, he is the rock of ages. To the horticulturalist, he is the true vine. To the judge, he is the righteous judge. To the juror, he is the faithful and true witness. To the jeweler, he is the pearl of great price. To the lawyer, he is the counselor and advocate. To the lonely maiden, he is her betrothed. To the mother, he is the lovely son. To the mariner, he is the great polar star. To the needy, he is the source of supply. To the outcast, he is the friend of sinners. Praise the Lord. To the philosopher, he is the wisdom of God. To the photographer, he is the perfect likeness. To the pilgrim, he is the way. The potter, he is the vessel of honor. To the preacher, he is the word of God. To the printer, he is the true type. To the sculptor, he is the living stone. To the servant, he is the good master. To the sinner, he is the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. To the student, he is the incarnate truth. To the theologian, he is the author and finisher of faith. To the thirsty, he is the water of life. To the toiler, he is the giver of rest. To the unclean, he is the fountain of cleansing. To the widow, he is the righteous judge. And to the weary, he is the rest for the soul. Simply put, Jesus is the answer to every need we have.